my name is Jeff Louie. I'm a associate professor of theology at Western Seminary, which is in uh, Santa Clara now. We have some of the students here. I uh, was a pastor for 25 years, 19 in the great city of San Francisco. Um, I'm a founding member of the Gospel Coalition and still am on the Council of Gospel Coalition. Uh, I love people. I love talking to you all. I wish I had more time just to talk to you all and pray for you all. And uh, I'm a grandfather and uh, two daughters, and I love my children. And the Lord has graced me with a very caring wife who put up with me for 37 years or something like that. It's a long time, you know. Uh, I teach theology mostly. I teach Old Testament, the whole sequence. I also teach pastoral ministries. This seminar actually allows me to, to sift through the best of all three of my disciplines to tell you about Old Testament revivals and the gospel. Because for me, I teach a continuum of the Old Testament into the new. And so this is not only to teach you what Old Testament revivals are, were about, uh, what the gospel revival is about, but to see what the gospel and what Christ did transformed, literally, uh, the redemptive uh, narrative of, of Scripture. So you're taking notes. I will tell you what. I will give you my email address. If you want this PowerPoint, uh, email me. I'll give it to you. Okay, for 19.95. No, it's uh, 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 it's free, so I'll give it to you for free. <laughs> yeah, but there's some five hidden slides that you will not have. Uh, no, okay. My email is J Louis, J Louis L O U I E at Western Seminary. Uh, and I will and I will not sell your email address to uh, anybody. Dot edu, and that's important. It's not com or org. It's edu. Okay. <clears throat> This is Old Testament revivals and the Gospels. And so we're going to try to cover this fast. There's about 26 or 27 slides, and we're going to have time for questions and answers. Okay. When I get seminary students, and when I get people, I go speaking at people's churches and things like this, this is what people read the Bible for. Just do it. Many people who read the Bible think that the catalytic key is to find out what God wants from us and do it. Just do it. You're going to find God's will. What does he want me to do? Oh, wow, I need to figure out, should I buy this? Let me find any Bible verses on this, you know. Then when we read the Old Testament, we would discover what faith and obedience was all about and, and duplicate it. So you hear sermons, oh, you know, Moses, you need to be like Moses. David, you need to be like David. And you need to be like all these guys, you know. That's how people read it, okay? It's usually, it's a book to find out God's wisdom on how to make big-ticket item decisions or important, more make important decisions in life, okay? And, you know, I believe that there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible to help you teach that. But the Bible is also a narrative, and this is where the Gospel and the Gospel Coalition all fits in. It's not just about morality. There's a missing link. Though there is a continuum of a faithful life from the Old Testament in the New, declared in Galatians and Hebrews. Now, I've got to just kind of stop here. If you have any familiarity with the epistle of the Galatians and uh, the book of Hebrews, you realize that 
the concept of faith is actually very critical in both of these books. In Galatians, uh, we are uh, sort of like spiritual descendants of Abraham, the father of faith. And then in Hebrews, you have that famous Hall of Fame chapter of people about faith. There are actually these important themes that are actually brought over from the old into, into the new. Okay? So, though there's a continuum of, of faithful life from the Old Testament to the new, declared in Galatians and Hebrews, uh, for a gospel perspective, faith, obedience, and revival is incomplete without the person work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the revision. This is, there's going to be typos in this one. Okay. And I'm going to have to, <laughs> maybe I should get the other one up. Okay. Ah, let's just go with this one. Okay. Okay. Three perspectives, what we need to do. Okay. First, we need to see what was good about them in the Old Testament so that we can understand and replicate aspects of faith and repentance. See, one of the things about reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament was not complete. If it was, why did Jesus need to come? But there's something really good about it. So partly as a student of Scripture, you got to find out what was good about it, carry that over, and then find out what was limiting about it and see what Christ could do as a result after that. Okay? So, uh, you know what? I am going to op- call up the other one. I'm going to call up the other one. I'm going to close this one because there was two of them here. Let me see when this one was. Uh, I think it's this one. No. I guess it's that one. It was that one. We'll just do it again. Okay. We got that. We got this. So we got to take out uh, the second thing about what we need is we need to understand the limitations of the Old Testament. So we got to carry over things that are good. We have to understand the limitations of Old Testament revivals. Okay. Lest we think that we ourselves are the catalyst for the deliverance. There's something very limiting about it. One of the things I always would love if I had time to teach Old Testament to my students is to quiz them Genesis to Malachi and say, okay, tell me the redemptive story. Give me the timeline. Tell me exactly the highlights and lowlifes of each of the book and how Christ is needed from Genesis to Malachi because there are limitations. Man cannot deliver ourselves in the Old Testament. It's just the sad truth. Third, We need to see how the person and work of Christ is needed to empower a revival that the Old Testament pointed towards. It was good. Faith, obedience was good. The one true God was good. But there's something about them that they just couldn't turn the corner as a people of God. They would always fall. So when you can see that, and this is sort of the, 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 the roadmap of where we're going to go. It helps you to understand the gospel in general. It also helps you to understand the flow of the New Old Testament into the new. Let's go on the next slide. Let's look at some of the great revivals of the Old Testament. Now, I know this is not my revision. I, 
my revision has a few other ones. Okay. Some of the great revivals of the Old Testament, Moses and the deliverance of the Hebrews, was a great revival. Okay. Short-lived, but great. One of the greatest revivals of all time was Joshua and the conquest. Uh, he gets in the, he gets there and he, he, he kind of gets the people all devoted to God and they go in the land and they take the land. It's a great revival. I know in my revision, I had a missing one here. It was the judges during the period of judges. There are these cycles of these pe- people that God raised, uh, to deliver a people that kept on falling into false worship. Okay? So there's something in between. Solomon and the temple dedication. Great revival. You ever want to read one of the greatest prayers ever in the Bible? Read Solomon's prayer dedication of the temple. It's a wonderful prayer. Okay? Uh, there are a few good kings of the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, this is very easy. Uh, none of them good. <laughs> southern kingdom, eight good ones. Uh, but you will see the, I don't know if we have time to see though, but they, they have limitations in them. One of the greatest revivals of all time, Jonah and Nineveh. Okay. What's interesting is that of all the prophets who wrote, <clears throat> Jonah is the only prophet who actually turned a revival into God. Uh, Don Carson talked about how Isaiah would not get a response. Add to Isaiah, Ezekiel, add to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, add to Jeremiah, Hosea, add, add all, add, Mal- add them all. The only one who got revival was Jonah, and he did half-heartedly. You see, and this shows you something very strange, because it is not merely the, it is not on the, the, the mantle of the prophet. Because if it was, it's like, you know, Jonah, you know, I know you just did it because you didn't want to become, you know, whale kibble, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> look, I, I can read through that, you know. I have to twist your arm a little bit to get you out there, you know. Uh, but the greatest revival, because you had a whole pagan city coming to Christ from top to bottom. It's like, what? Don't you, if you don't think that this is, these are all uh, foreshadowings of Christ, then Ezra and Nehemiah, you could throw in Zerubbabel, all the post-exilic guys. They, they're building uh, Ezra with the law. Ezra and Nehemiah had to do with marriages, uh, building the city, the temple. Okay, so these are the great revivals we're dealing with. You probably add a, f- a few more, but finally, you've got to have to get an idea. Okay, good carryovers. <clears throat> now, there are things that these revivals that are good that you say, you know what? Actually, they are transcendent themes that you can actually carry over today. Now, I have five of them. I might have had six of them in my other revision, okay? One, there's often a cry for deliverance, okay? Uh, it's great because having heard Don Carson and uh, Leon's preach, this fits in right into what they're saying about the prayer. Often a cry for deliverance, okay? Uh, we will expand this into a prayer aspect a little later on. But this was big, a cry for deliverance. There was a 
based upon a redemptive promise of God. Oftentimes when you read the Old Testament, it's going to be like, oh, God, remember his covenant he made with the forefathers, and then he's going to do something. So it's based upon something that God um, made a binding promise to a people. So it's based upon something of God rather than, oh, wow, you know, it's just a bunch of people crying out to God. He'll deliver. No, it's based upon a covenant promise. There was always a bold leader who, who obeyed God. This was almost, uh, uh, this is a given. And this falls in line with Don Carson's message. There's always a leader, and he was talking about how to be a good leader. Always a leader. What you're going to find out <clears throat> is that the leaders were almost always chosen by God, and most of them didn't feel qualified to do the thing. Okay? Most of them didn't feel qualified which tells you the power of God in this. You must understand that even though we're going to talk about the carryovers, there's something about the graciousness of God and his ability to even go beyond what you and I have that is really at the center of any sort of uh, revival, be it individual or corporate. Fourth, there was a corporate repentance a turning from sin, or a symbolic removal of sin. Uh, I know what I put a symbolic removal of sin. That occurs in Solomon's uh, dedication of the temple. Uh, Symbolic removal of sin. Uh, There's also a symbolic removal of sin in Moses' freeing the Hebrews from Egypt, where of the leaven, uh, sweep out the leaven right before the, you know, the Passover and things, it's kind of symbolic. And fifth, there was a consecration and then a carryover or an obedience. These are all good things that carried over into all of these uh, categories of revival that actually you can carry over into the new, you see. So these are the good, okay? Now, there are also some limitations, And the limitations are a bold, godly leader did not guarantee revival. As a matter of fact, the prophets teach us that if you were a prophet of God, there's a 90% chance that you would not lead in revival. There's a 90% chance they beat you up. Uh, It's like, what what is that? Uh, The majority of Old Testament prophets were ineffectual in bringing revival. And God told them that prior to their ministry. And many warned that their words would be rejected. A second limitation is lasting repentance in the Old Testament was always limited in scope or duration. I challenged my students. I said, you need a a mental time chart. Tell me how many, approximately how many years was Israel in revival? And how many years were they in de-revival? Or negative revival. And I'll tell you, most of the years they're negative revival. Okay, that's just, that's just, just this plain. So these revivals, though good, they could never do anything. I'll tell you that. If you know the, the, uh, the story of the, uh, the judges, it's cyclical. Every man does what is right in their own eyes. God raises a prophet, uh, a, a judge, and then he dies, and then they go back into Baal worship, and then another one comes up. It's cyclical. And then you have the real good ones. And we'll get into that, like Moses, and you know, like you know, 
the, you know, the, the chisel isn't even cold yet from, uh, uh, and, uh, they're, they're worshiping the golden calf. It's like, what gives, you know? And so, so it's limited in duration and scope. Even the good kings of the South, and we won't have a slide on the kings of the South, one of the recurring comments was that those good Southern kings in their revivals did not remove all the high places of worship. It's a recurring theme. They couldn't, they did not, but he did not remove all the high places. He did not remove them. So there's a limitation. Something good, but there's a limitation. And even when they did it, it usually lasted no more than one generation before the whole thing slipped down. Okay? And it's just pure biblical narrative. Okay? That's the way how Old Testament reads. Let's look at some of them. And you know what's bad? I put Joshua before Moses. And I know this was an old one because this is going to have a lot of typos. Okay. Joshua and the conquest, the bold leader was Joshua. He was based upon a covenant promise in Joshua 1, 2 to 5. Some of the acts of consecration was, uh, there was a circumcision a, a second time for the men there, you know. That's pretty serious stuff. And then uh, the removal of sin, you have a really strange story about how serious they were with sin because you have the sin of Achan and his removal. The whole family's removed. They just like, they, 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 they get rid of everything, okay? And so this was one revival. This should have come first. You have Moses and the deliverance of the Hebrews. You have very similar themes. One added theme was the cry of the deliverance in, in the book of Hebrews. It's a God heard their moaning and groaning and their anguish and things like that. God remembers his covenant. Bold leader, though he was not bold when God calls him. There's a symbolic removal of sin in the leaven. Okay? Clear foreshadowing of Christ in the Passover lamb. If you don't see Christ in the Passover lamb, I don't know, you know, I don't know what church you're going to, going to, you know. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, uh, Jesus is uh, Jesus is the Passover, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Uh, you know, okay. Uh, and there's consecration of the firstborn males to God in Exodus 13. Very, very interesting. These themes, actually, good themes. Okay, Solomon and the temple. Again, bold leader. Temple is described as the place people go when they fall in sin. If you ever want to see why Jesus was so upset when he cleansed the temple, go to 1 Kings 8. Because 1 Kings 8 is the chapter that reveals Solomon's great prayer of what the temple should be. And it's basically when you have famine and you need to confess your sin, hike over to the temple. If you lose in battle... And you hike over to the temple and God will hear, forgive your sins. When the locusts eat your wheat, hike over. When it's every, it's, it's incredible. The whole chapter is about prayer, sin, and forgiveness. It's very interesting. Okay. Temple is consecrated through sacrifices. And then the temple itself foreshadows, uh, Foreshadows Christ because, and then the, the 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 covenant, the tablets are in is, is in the ark, and the ark's in the temple. I mean, it's it's crazy how much this 
foreshadows Christ. Sin, confession, leader. Jonah and Nineveh. And when I send this out to you, I will send out the revised version, not this one. You see this one? I, I knew I corrected this. What's it going on here? Okay. Bold leaders, Jonah. Uh, the Ninevites was crazy. They're in sackcloth and ashes. What's that? It's the only group of people who responded positively to this message. And the message is basically a message of doom and destruction. If you ever read Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, any of the prophets, it's always mixed with condemnation with a huge dose of the promise of the restoration. You get Jonah, there is no promise of any restoration, no promise of any forgiveness. You're gone. Sorry. These people, they're in sackcloth and ashes. Jeremiah 3.10, they said, we turn from our wickedness. Who knows? Maybe God will be merciful and forgive us. You know? And then the whole thing about Jonah being swallowed up by a big fish and then Jesus himself uses it as the sign that he will show uh, the Jewish people of, you know, uh, of him being in the grave. It's not the foreshadow of Christ. What I like about Jonah is that Jonah is the only successfully revival that a prophet gave, and it was to a pagan people where people, where the prophet was actually half-hearted. Okay. Ezra and Nehemiah. <clears throat> Bold leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. One a cupbearer, another uh, kind of Levite. Huge prayer for deliverance and confession and a cry for help. One of the great things of the Old Testament, if we had time, we don't have time, is if you studied all the great prayers in the Old Testament, and the first one, the first great prayer, is Abraham's prayer, when God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom. Abraham's first uh, example of intercession. And then you go into uh, other intercessions. You've got Daniel's intercession. You have uh, Nehemiah's intercession. You have uh, Ezra's uh, intercession. They, must, they almost always identify with the sinner and they cry for help for God, for forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Almost always. It's incredible. Okay? You're going to get this here. You have repentance as confession and separation in Ezra 10 and 9. A lot of them have to do with foreign wives and effect upon the society. Uh, the covenant is pre pre present, present because uh, in the breaking of the commands of God, and there's this huge reading of the law of, uh, in Nehemiah 8 by Ezra. And then there's a, there's a consecration that Nehemiah has, uh, leads the people in. Okay, now, there's limitations to all this. All Old Testament revivals failed over time. You just have to understand this. Just the way the whole thing reads. One of the difficulties of reading the Old Testament is that's so long. And then once you get the book of Leviticus, you'd say, I give up uh, next year. I give up next year. Okay. But if you were able to read the whole thing and understand it in its order, you're going to see that basically you got these blips of success leaders who do great things, and these long dry periods 
Well, they didn't know anything. Ask just how the Old Testament reads, you see. Uh, <clears throat> the conquest, the deliverance from Egypt quickly degrades to the golden calf worship and the general failure of Israel throughout her history. Basically, what happens through Aaron's leadership continues through the rest of his, Israel's history. You got the greatest revival, the conquest through Joshua, is followed by the worst, one of the worst periods of Israel's history, the period of the judges. It's terrible. Everyone does right as what their own eyes. God has to raise these weird, the left-handed deliverer, you know, the, 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 you know, these weird, you know, the, the, the womanizer deliverer. There's all sorts of weird deliverers in the period of the judges, you know, uh, 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 uh. You know, just weird, 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 weird. One who, you know, uh, born illegitimate, you know, parented, uh, deliverer, okay? So the conquest, even though it's great, the period right after, it's like, gee, I thought revivals were supposed to be so long-lasting. Why does the period of the judges follow the period of the conquest? Because nothing lasts in the Old Testament. Solomon... In this great prayer, and he builds a temple because uh, David, his father, is a man of war. What a hoot. He creates the temple, builds the temple. He gives this great prayer about sin. He ushers in idolatry more than anybody else combined, you know? Solomon is like, Solomon's such, okay, I'm not going to say Solomon's a hypocrite. Solomon could not follow through on anything. Okay. You see this? He builds a temple. It's idolatry. He's probably the source of the Song of Solomon, what it means to find the love of your life. He himself has all these wives that drive him into idolatry at the end. It's, it's a hoot. Uh, Solomon's a hoot. Uh, because he's so good, and then it's like, you know, you started really good, but oh boy, you know, we all love to find the love of your life, but man, what happened at the end of your life, man? It's like, okay. Other limitations. The revival of Nineveh cannot be sustained through Jonah and the prophet Nahum. Now, this is when you know the Old Testament. A lot of the Old Testament books, they do not, they cannot stand alone because there's usually a book that somehow is the other bookend to it. The bookend match to Jonah is Nahum. Nahum was the prophet, very short book, sole message, Nineveh's doom. It'll, be a, it'll never rise again. Never rise again. You know? And then you got this great, uh, you got this great revival, and then Nahum has to come, and a serious doom is, is, is set. Ezra and Nehemiah's revival... And, uh, you know, they help rebuild the city and they, 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 they fix up their marriages and stuff and the religious center within the marriages. They degrade to the condemnation um, by the time of the post-exilic prophets. You read the post-exilic prophets and the best one to read is Malachi because Malachi is the last one. So if you want to want to know what does the whole Old Testament, how does it end, read Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. So, would you uh, feed uh, your officials defective animals? 
No. But you would offer them to your God. Oh, that there would be one who would shut the doors because I've grown tired of your sacrifices. Okay? It's really gotten the damning. And at the end, it says, I will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord um, so that he can restore the hearts of your children to their fathers. Because at the end of the book of Malachi, these are the last verses. There needs to be a restoration for them. The Old Testament ends with failure. The dilemma. The Old Testament revival, and I got the typo, revivals are both effective and ineffectual. And there lies the dilemma we have. They're effective, things we learn, but they're ineffectual. Then when we add the developing revelation of the judgment associated with the terrible day of the Lord in the Old Testament prophets, what is the solution? Question mark. If I said to you, what is the greatest theme of the anger, wrath, or judgment of God in the Old Testament? A lot of people say, oh, you know, the fall of man, you know, the curse and stuff. Oh, that's, that's, that, that looks good. Actually, the, cur- the curse at the, the fall of Adam and Eve looked good, actually, because you haven't seen anything until you re- read what the Old Testament prophets were saying about the impending day of the Lord coming. Terrible. Oh, who can hide, you know? The worst thing that can have with Adam and Eve is you die. That's the worst thing. Come the terrible wrath of the day of the Lord, what's the solution? So you got this terrible day of the Lord that they're all talking about, you know, the prophets are talking about. Cyclical failure. You got these great people who God raises to deliver Israel. They just can't sustain it. That's the fact of the Old Testament. It's effective, but in a sense, we need a better deliverer. We need something better. We need a better realization of sin and confession. It's not working. If it's law-based, we need to go a little deeper than that, than law-based. We need a better bold leader. We need a better covenantal promise. We need a better consecration. We need a better obedience. We need a solution to the judgment described in the day of the Lord. Now, all of this is foundational to the understanding of the gospel because this is the dilemma. And the Lord's coming too. Who can hide? I tell people... Every time you hear people that do like uh, Bible studies of all the men of the Bible, uh, the, the punchline is like, you too can be Moses. You too can be David. You too can be, you know, uh, Jeremiah. You too can be Jonah, you know. Uh, I tell you, even if you were, you couldn't deliver yourself. Uh, because at the end, we need someone better than those people. Because these people couldn't deliver themselves. And so, enter Christ, who unpacks sin to condemn all. Now, partly is when you understand this, 
we segue it over to the book of Romans. We're in the book of Romans, first three chapters. All men are condemned to sin. All have fallen short to the glory of God. The Jew, the Gentile, the moralist, they all fall. Okay. Part of getting to Paul's conclusion in Romans 1 to 3 is Jesus talking. Jesus' tough statements cut both ways. They're a trajectory to be like, but it also reveals our inability as well. Like, uh, I go to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Anyone who says, you fool, shall be guilty of hell. Hmm. That's pretty tough there. Fool's not even, you know, begins with the letter F, but it's not the... Not the, not the, not the word that pays, you know? That's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't sound bad. It's because we're all going to hell. Anyone who looks, any man who looks at a woman to lust, well, I guess Christian men don't lust. Because <laughs> in a strange sense, we're all going to hell. That's a strange thing. There, there's certain aspects, we, 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 the things that we aim to be and things that reveal what we are. And that's Jesus here. We need to enter Christ who is the leader who will do what all the others could not do. This is why in circles like Tim Keller and, and, and yours here, he says, you know what? We need a better Moses. We need a better Jonah. We need a better David. We need a better. You know why? Because those people are better. I'll tell you, those people are better than any of us here. And they couldn't bring deliverance. We need someone better. Okay. We don't need us to be like them, though it's kind of good to be like them, but our deliverance isn't based upon being like them. Our deliverance is based upon someone who's better than them. We need a better covenant, man. The whole thing in, in Jeremiah, Christ entered the new covenant. I write it in their hearts. I'll write it in their hearts. I'll write it written in scrolls or in stone. It's in their hearts. Christ sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He breaks the bond of sin within us, the great theme in the book of Romans. He takes upon himself the wrath of God and in a strange way deals with the impending terrible day of the Lord in himself for us. He unites us with the Father through faith in a way that none of the Old Testament people could ever knew. This is why the Old Testament revivals, there are good things we carry over, like faithfulness, obedience, prayer. But unless you bring it in with a great understanding of what Christ has done fully for you, it won't work because our salvation is much greater than you could ever uh, imagine. Enter the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in and uh, 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 the, the, the second speaker uh, spoke about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Upper Room Discourse in the Gospel of John one of his major roles is what? To convict the world of sin. 
What are you talking about? Yeah, that's why when you had the day of Pentecost, you got thousands of people coming to Christ. It's because Peter finally got, you know, took a preaching class or something, you know. It's because he, he, he understood the power of the Spirit was bestowed upon, and it convicts of sin. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit empowers us through giftedness so that a select few in the Old Testament become all in Christ. And I know I missed that slide. Uh, one of the slides I had was uh, all the people that were empowered by the Spirit in the Old Testament. It's about, it's about, it's about a dozen people. In the New Testament, that dozen people becomes everyone who is in Christ. And so, in a strange way, everyone has an ability to input into the program of God. And many of you have the ability to proclaim and be the catalyst proclamation of revival. Because of the Holy Spirit that's in you. It, it's, it's, it's tremendous. You have the Holy Spirit convicting people of sin. You have the Spirit working within each and every one of us. And, 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 and you know, you have to not quench the Spirit. And, uh, and then enter the Holy Spirit who helps develop a better follower. Because that was a problem in the Old Testament. They couldn't sustain it. The, the Spirit develops a better follower as we are transformed inwardly through the fruit of the Spirit. And so our growth is deeper than just the outward. It's a very, very, very deep transformation. And, t- and, and Don Carson spoke about the transformational aspect of the gospel. That's why I'm glad uh, they, they gave the messages so you don't have to speak as much, you know. The transformation of the Spirit is, 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 is part of it because it was part of the things that they could not really deal with. They needed something better than that. Things to remember. Do not neglect prayer. And uh, the second speaker, uh, Pastor Crump, uh, spoke on this. Do not neglect prayer. And he did a marvelous job in talking about the types of prayer that you can have. Do not neglect prayer. Okay. Do not neglect to proclaim Christ and his work for us and its gracious means of faith. Do not be afraid because that's the essence of the gospel and the catalytic event. Do not quench the spirit. I, w- I, I happen to sit next to... Uh, uh, how do you pronounce his first name? Leonce. Uh, Leonce, yeah. And I was saying I really liked um, your, your emphasis on the spirit. Because it's so easy for people who study the Bible to always uh, f- to, to inhibit the work of the Spirit uh, in transformation, in proclamation, in conviction of sin. Uh, you know, one of the strange things, the work of the Spirit is to convict sin. He's convicting us all the time, even this day. Sometimes we fail because we think that the act of repentance is something we do once and it's at the moment of conversion. So once we repent at conversion, we don't have to repent again. That's not true. You're repenting for the rest of your life. It's not for salvation, man, because where you, where you're not going to be perfect anyway. But it's the role of the Spirit to always be reminding you of new things and say, oh, wow, I didn't, rem- you know, I didn't realize that. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize that. You're right, man. 
<laughs> You're right. Don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit in terms of doing his marvelous works and quench the spirit is inward change. I, I tell people, how many of you are very uh, active at church, but inwardly you're like really kind of, you know, you know emotionally kind of messed up, you know? At least 20, 30 percent of, not 40, I'm looking at your faith, at least 50 percent of you guys. I, I kind of like that, you know? Uh, and you don't let the spirit to change you because it's, everything's as, it's just doing things. Whether the transformation that comes to Christ. Do not let, neglect a repentance at conversion. That's a real problem that I think the speakers were talking about. Uh, you know, uh, the ability to proclaim what the truth of God, then do not neglect the process of inward and outward transformation that is a manifestation of regeneration. You see, what's interesting, in Christ, the obedience thing follows regeneration. And that is something that is in, in all of us in different degrees, but it is real. And you can't quench, stop that. These things are things to remember as an individual or as a church as you teach people to have a, a sense of revival. And I think that's it. Okay? I know I had some other ones. Let me find this in here. I think I had another slide I could find. Ah, oh, that's good enough. That's good enough. But uh, that's 45 minutes, so I want to let uh, 15 minutes for questions and answers. And if you email me, I'll give you these slides, but the revised version, not the, not the ones with all the typos and missing slides, and o slides in not the, the right order. You realize that revival in the way that uh, the speakers were speaking in the morning sessions are not guarantees. What's interesting, our guarantee is in the survival of the great and coming wrath of the day of the Lord. I mean, and, and we stand before God. Each of us personally grows in ways in which the Old Testament people uh, were desire, God desired them to do, but, but we will in, in some way. In terms of corporate revival, you read in the New Testament and if you, the best way to understand corporate revival is to see, to understand the different churches in the New Testament and see which churches got it and which ones didn't. And to say, did they all get it? And they said, nah, they didn't all get it. Some got it. Some didn't get it. Each one personally stands before their God through the word of Christ. But in terms of the type of revival that um, this conference is talking about is when the whole church understands it and then you have a supernatural uh, work of God that occurs like in the, the Church of Philadelphia in, in, in the book of the Revelation or uh, 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 the Church of Philippi is commended because they are partakers in the work of, of the gospel with Paul uh, or let's say, uh, what is that one? Uh, there's another one in the book of the Revelation. I'm going to forget that uh, they're under great suffering is good. But then for every good church, you had some really bad and nasty ones. Thyatira, Pergamum, uh, Galatia was, was you know, kind of losing it a little bit. Corinth, oh, it was bad, you know. Uh, Corinth, yeah, you know, really some not, not good ones. So that 
you don't, you, you, you aren't to, to see it as a formulaic thing. We just do all these five things. It's guaranteed. No, there's no guarantee. There was nothing guaranteeing the New Testament. The only guarantee was the bold stole the spirit because that was the mighty work of God on the day of Pentecost. But as the church develops, each one fights its own battles and must overcome. You carry over things of faith. You must always proclaim the benefits of Christ and what he has brought to the table because ultimately he is our champion. And then perhaps God may grant us wider revival uh, in our lifetime and in our region. Okay, any questions? We got, we got uh, 14 minutes. Did someone have a... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, that's a good question. And your name is again? Anne? That's right. I thought it was Anne, and I didn't want to miss it. Okay, Anne asked a good question. The Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testament, okay. If you take a principle that the way God worked at one period of time is exactly the same way he works at every other period of time, that is not where I'm coming from. Because from a gospel perspective, there is a development toward and pointing to Christ so that we hold to something called progressive revelation. Not everything is complete, and God doesn't have to work in the same way. Now, when it comes to the Spirit, the very first mention of the Spirit is actually in Genesis 1, in creation. The strangest thing, Jesus is not mentioned. You've got you to gotta wait until John chapter 1 to find out that Jesus was actually there, you know. Uh, <laughs> but but, you know, but, but he's, it's a strange thing. He was there, but you get John 1. And Colossians 1, he's the stainer of all things and created all things. Colossians 1 and John 1, to find out that, that Jesus was actually in Genesis 1. But he's not mentioned. You see, it's, it's a strange thing. Now, when you talk about the Spirit, he's there. And then mm, some of the people who were like architects, who, who designed the, the furnishings, they were empowered by the Spirit. Mm, uh, Jephthah, Gideon, the, the judges were had the Spirit. Moses had the Spirit. Joshua had the Spirit. Uh, you know, some of the prophets had the Spirit. Okay. Now, whenever the Spirit came in the Old Testament, it was like, <laughs> the work of God is done, man. It's like the Spirit was mighty, okay, in creation into these people. You know that God was at work in the Old Testament. What I would say in the Old Testament, the Spirit did not indwell all followers of God because that was a promise left for the ascension. And Jesus says, I come, but I will not keep, uh, leave you alone. It is better that I go because I'm going to send you something better, another comforter. And then you have the manifestation 
So when you get the gifts of the Spirit in Ephesians and Romans, it's to everybody. So it's almost like a select few is a, is a foreshadow of what happens to the entire body of God. It's really very interesting. And so I, I tell people, the things in the New Testament are almost every major theme in the New Testament finds itself in some uh, embryonic uh, stage in the Old Testament, waiting to be unleashed. Because the Spirit was there. The Spirit was very limited. Not because God you know, changed his mind. It's because with the triumph of Christ and the victory, Jesus then says, oh, it's like someone who is now victor and he's throwing out the spoils of war to the citizens who were supporting him. And it's, it's, we are gifted because of the victory of Christ. This is the spoils of war. <laughs> the giftedness of, of, of the triumphant one. You know, and here's the big difference. You read the Old Testament, it's almost the prophets. They had to have their arms twisted to do the work of God. If you ever read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, I always tell my students, you don't want to be those guys. You know, because each one of them would tell them, you're going to get beat up. I've made your face like flint. You know, for us, it's a titanium alloy. Uh, because, uh, you know, they, they're, they're going to persecute you. You don't want to be them. Very sad people. They were compelled to obey, even though they would not see the fruit of their labor. For us, what's very interesting, we have all an empowerment, but the empowerment is indwell also to transform us in a way that is also very, very joyous and peace and the fruit of the Spirit. And so we proclaim with a greater peace. You know why? Because in the prophets, they were left scratching. So when is your deliverance going to come? As Don said, and Isaiah, and he said, Isaiah, until all the cities are desolate. We ask, when is deliver come? Jesus would look at us. What are you asking? I already came, man. What are you? <laughs> your deliverance is here. You know, what, what, what are you looking at in the future? Our victory is here. This is a great triumph. We're not looking for, oh, when are you going to deliver? Deliverance is here. And it's procured by the, by the cross and the death of Jesus, you know? And, and so it's the time, what drives us is very different. Yes? So, yeah, Jesus is the, is the, you know, the perfect leader and the perfect deliverer. And the, how does New Testament, um, how does New Testament revival Okay. I think in the New Testament, the revival of individuals are always there. Because one thing different is that in the New Testament, God is calling out individuals to make a new group, people. He's calling, calling them out. Okay. And each, and each and every one of us who I believe is truly regenerate is growing in some way. I mean, none of us are really happy with how we're, we're growing, you know? But we're all growing, you see? In ways that was not found in the ministry of Jesus Christ or in the ministry of the, the prophets. Now, in terms of corporate revival, 
and corporate revival can take in, let's say, different looks. One is national revival. Another is, let's say, regional revival. Let's talk about national revival. It's very interesting. God can cause nations to have tremendous revivals in them. Uh, mentioned Korea was one. Another one I'll mention was the Assyrian revival. Uh, you know that Jonah ministered to Nineveh and they repented and were spared. Nahum comes later. There is no repentance. The Assyrians are, are you know, there's no more country of Assyria. You see, that's how uh, accurate that prophecy was. But <sighs> there are still Assyrians with no country. The Assyrians were the first ethnic group who came to Christ as a whole. You talk to any Assyrian, they're very proud of that. It's a, Christian, it's a true Christian Assyrian. It's like, this is, man, what, that's a hoot. Wait a minute. Nahum says, you're never going to come back as a nation. Yeah. You're going to be wiped out. What? <laughs> the first ethnic people group to adopt Christianity as a whole, Assyrians. The irony of God. Okay. Okay. So God can grant that. I see, you know, I'm of Chinese descent. Uh, you see a great revival in China. Uh, with, uh, you know, with communism, the suppression, and then huge amounts of people coming to Christ to the point where we don't even consider Chinese, China an unreached group anymore. They should send any missionaries here, you know, because, you know, you know, they're, 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 you know, and it's like God, God allows that. Then at times, nations turn and they never to come back. It's like countries that are really in hard times are like in the, a lot of the European countries are in very, very hard times. Very, very hard time now. It's all by the grace of God. Uh, so there's sometimes national revivals, and you don't know. That is up to the work of God to decide. In terms of regional revivals, I think that is more within our reach. Within East Bay or South Bay or Peninsula or North Bay. That is more in your reach to gather people. And you're not going to say, wow, now, you know, there are no more jails, you know. Uh, I don't think so. You know, I, I don't <laughs> I think what that's going to be is that, wow, people are really serious about Christ. And we have more influence and input upon the unbelievers than ever before uh, because of the genuineness of the, of the faith of the people here. I think you, 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 you might be able to see that. Uh, but all of this is based upon the grace of God. None of this is formulaic, methodological. You do A, B, and C, and you're all going to get D. No, 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 no. It's all based upon a sovereign purpose of God. But we carry over the good things. I could say if, if we don't gather to pray, you're never, we're never going to see it. If there's no one who's bold enough, even having that person spit out out of the stomach of great fish and having its arm twisted. Someone has to come up and lead. This is how God always worked, you see. So someone has to stand up and say, you know what? This is what we need. You have to be bold. And you can't be full of yourself because you realize that you're nothing. You're just, you're just bold to, to proclaim it, you know? 
And it's ultimately, you know, what, I, I don't have the magic formula. I just, this is what God would want us to be. Let's pray. Let's gather to, to, to see. Let's see. And then you never know. And you leave it up to the grace of God to act and to react in this world. Okay, any other question? Yes. Well, well, if you read, I wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition on the spiritual situation in the Bay Area. It's, I think it's been out for the last week or so. And in my 20 years, I, I do see many good signs of it. Uh, just a short and brief, i got like two minutes. One, uh, with the resurgence of ministries going back into the inner city, church planters are pouring into San Francisco like you've never seen. It used to be urban blight. They're pouring out of San Francisco. Now they're pouring into San Francisco. One reason, because of gentrification. And it's become a cool place to live now. You see, people love, want to, you're single, you want to live, you know, you may not want, but you know. Some cool people, you know, want to live in San Francisco. You got um, some organizations mobilizing NorCal Network, Gospel Coalition here, and then you got some Peninsula people, a group called uh, Transforming the Bay with Christ, TBC people, which is a broader evangelical movement with uh, John Ortberg and uh, uh, Chip Ingram, that group. Uh, with uh, some financing from Silicon Valley meeting together to bring a transformation to the Bay. You have some strategic denominations like PCA as strategic learning centers, Stanford, Berkeley, the big uh, learning centers. Uh, You have E-Free active. E-Free is very strong on the East Bay, less strong uh, in the peninsula. But like this church, this is a very strong church. You have, you know... uh, and then you have, um, uh, uh, well, I don't know, like PC, I don't know if you follow uh, denominational news, PC USA, and the whole, uh, uh, they, they have gay ordination, so a lot of the churches left. Well, uh, 25%, and this was told, told to me by uh, someone who's in the PC USA and is in leadership. His church left, and he said 25% of the churches in the Bay Area left PCUSA, but it represents 50% of the people. So that's like, whoa. <laughs> so there's something, there's something happening, you know. And so you don't know what it'll be, but when I came here 20 years ago, San Francisco was a tough place to minister to. Uh, now it's, it's, it's actually, I see much more vibrancy in this. Okay, enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, send me your email and I'll get you the revised copy of this. Take care.